if you would, contributors of each chapter. And what we're going to find out as we proceed with Genesis, as we begin this morning, we're going to find out that the emphasis of Genesis and the presentation and the introduction in Genesis is going to be the foundation and controlling information and truth that will govern our understanding and activity of what happens through the rest of the Bible. So it's critical, absolutely critical to see Genesis from the perspective that we need to see it. And hopefully as a result of this, we are going to have our understanding and our eyes open to a larger vista of revelation and continuity of the Word of God than we've ever realized before. I am pumped up about this study. Very excited about it. By the way, let me say this. Next week, the men will be meeting in this room. The ladies will be meeting in the prayer room, I think, next door. We will have that separation prior, one more, this one more time before the men's retreat. So we won't have Sunday school or school of the Word next week, but we certainly will get back the week after the next, unless I'm dead, and if I am, someone else will teach it. But next week, the men in here and the women in the other room. Father, thank you so much. Father, one of the primary truths about you that we will learn in Genesis is that you are sovereign. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty. Father, we thank you that this morning you are still sovereign. Father, as we have begun and as we sorted out the day in this church and as you have by your spirit been among us you're sovereign father we don't forget that nothing is out of your control nothing has fallen through the cracks things are not going wrong you are sovereign you are faithful you are good you are powerful you have a purpose you pursue your purpose, and you will fulfill your purpose. Thank you for that. Father, as we continue this morning, Father, give us your insight, your revelation, your understanding. Touch our hearts, touch our minds, minister to us that this may not be just another study, but that this will be the work of the Holy Spirit, enlarging, increasing, empowering, building into us and us into Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. If I go a little over 9.30 this morning, will you forgive me? Thank you. I was going to do it anyway, but I just really kind of wanted to be forgiven before we go over 9.30. You know, as we pursue the study of Genesis 1 through 11, and that's at least initially the scope of the study, what we're going to do is, in your mind, it may be a disproportionate amount of time, but we're going to spend a bulk of the time, a lot of time, in the first three chapters of Genesis. By the way, would I, could I ask some of you in the back tables to move forward so those who are coming in a little later will not be able to have to um, uh, disrupt? So could some of you just move forward to some of these tables up here, which allows those who are coming in a little later easier access into the room? just to serve the brothers and sisters who are getting here a little bit later. And so what we're doing 
in studying Genesis 1 through 11, you remember we said 1 through 11 is foundational for the rest of the book of Genesis. It introduces and it gives the backdrop and the understanding and the explanation of what happens in Genesis 12 to 50. And so as 1 through 11 is kind of preparatory to 12 through 50 and gives an understanding and a scope and a background for what happens in 12 through 50, Genesis 1 through 3 is the kernel of truth and of revelation that is necessary for us to first understand 1 through 11 and therefore the rest of the Bible. And so if there are any chapters in the Bible that are absolutely the most essential to understand, to understand God, to understand man, to understand <clears throat> what God's purpose is, what his plan, his process is, what the gospel is, what our future is, what all this is all about. If there are any three chapters in the Bible critical to this, they are Genesis 1 through, 11, uh, 1 through 3. This is why these three chapters are so under attack by the enemy. Is it any wonder at all that if any set of Scripture is under attack, Genesis 1 through 3 is that set which is under attack more than all the others probably put together. Why? Because it is the pillar on which the rest of the Bible stands. Destroy the pillar and the whole thing comes down. And I think as we go through this, you're going to begin to see why I say it this way. And by the way, if you missed last week or if you miss any of these weeks, or even if you don't want, even if you don't miss, if you want a CD of each of the teachings, please, please go ahead and get one at the, uh, what do you call it, the, the bookstore or that, that section where you come in and greet people. What is that called? The, the welcome center or whatever. Please get a CD. If you weren't here last week, please get a CD. So let me move along here. In the first three chapters of Genesis, we are going to discuss and discover, rather, what God is telling his people, one, about himself. Outside of the first three chapters of Genesis, you are going to have great difficulty in understanding who God is. Secondly, we're going to find out what God tells us about us, about his people. Third, we're going to find out what God tells us about the world in which we live. That begins to be revealed in Genesis 1 through 3. Fourth, we're going to learn about God's uh, true identity as he reveals his identity, beginning to reveal who he really is in Genesis 1 through 3, as he begins to reveal his purpose in 1 through 3, and as he begins to reveal his plan for the ultimate redemption of his people. All of this is in Genesis 1 through 3. The gospel's seed is in Genesis 1 through 3. And so in order to understand the gospel and in order to participate and function and receive the larger benefit of the gospel, not just to be saved. To be saved, you do not need to know what Genesis 1 through 3 is. All you need to know is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to the cross, paid for your sin, rose again for your justification, and that as you call upon him, you will be saved. Amen? That's the gospel. But to understand it and to get it in a grander scope and to function in it in a more full way, that's where we need the one through three. You see, in these chapters, we begin to see, and by the way, you notice that your word begin is going to be used a lot because the word beginning, Genesis, is kind of a play on words, and I'm not sure if you would have seen that. But in these chapters, we begin to see 
the reason God put it together. Here's the scope, purpose, centerpiece, kerygma, kernel, seed, foundation, whatever other words I can use. Here it is. We begin to see Christ. We begin to see Christ, the creator, the savior, and the sustainer of his people. This is what we begin to see in Genesis 1 through 3. You see, for too many believers, we think Jesus and the whole understanding of Christ, the Messiah, begins in Matthew 1.1. It begins, as we will find out, in the very first clause or phrase of the Bible. Christ begins there. You see, isn't this what Jesus told his disciples? Remember, we quoted this last week, Genesis, uh, Luke 24, 27, as these two disciples were leaving Jerusalem, going back to Emmaus after the crucifixion. Jesus is dead and buried, and they were upset because they thought Jesus would be the Messiah. And Jesus appeared to them, and through a series of conversations, he says to them, and beginning with Moses, and Moses begins where? With Genesis. Beginning in Genesis. And all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So what we know is this, that as we open the book of Genesis, as we open our Bible, we must open it with this predisposition, this preoccupation, this perspective, Christ. And Christ alone and the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of who he is, what he's done, and all about him. So don't ever study your Bible apart from having Christ as the eyesight, as the glasses, as the atmosphere, as the reason, as the goal of your study. Amen? And you can say amen occasionally if God says something. Thank you, brother. Thank you a lot. You see, the whole thing is about Jesus. If we are to understand and receive God's burden and his purpose and his blessings in Genesis and in anywhere else in the Bible, we must do so with a Christological perspective. Christological is a long word meaning Christological, Christ-centered, Christ-studied. Ology is a study of Christ. Christological means a Christ-centered perspective. We cannot and we will never understand God's purpose in Genesis or in any other Old Testament book apart from a Christological perspective. You may know all the facts. You may know all the figures. You may know all the people. You may know all the history. You may know all the activities. You may know it all. But you haven't discerned God's reason and purpose outside of knowing it Christologically within the context of Christ. So I, I want to make sure, if we don't go any further in this this morning, that there is a major <clears throat> shift, if you would, in the way we look at Genesis, and in fact, the way we look at the entire Old Testament. Too many believers look at the Old Testament, just as history, and we're going to find out who these old people are, what their weird names meant, where they went, how they did this, what happened there, and all of that. And that's great, and that's fine. And I believe in studying the Bible that way to get those facts and figures and information under the belt. But I cannot leave it there. <clears throat> I must allow God to give me, by the Spirit, the revelation of what God is saying and meaning as he gives us that information. Why is God giving us all this stuff? It's to reveal his Son. It's to talk about Christ. 
You see, we must see Genesis as God's beginning revelation that only in Christ will his glory be revealed in humanity. See, that's what Paul says in Colossians 2, 9. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily or in a man. That begins where? Not in the incarnation. It doesn't begin in the resurrection. That revelation begins in Genesis 1, verse 1. And it moves toward the outward physical accomplishment in the birth of Jesus and in the resurrection of Jesus. But the revelation begins in the very beginning. Although this truth is shrouded, this truth about Christ, this truth about God incarnate, although this truth is shrouded, it, you know, kind of covered over, if you would, in mystery and in fog, and in, uh, uh, it's difficult to see in, in, in typology and in intimations. We don't see it very clearly. We see little glimpses of it. Although it's shrouded in Genesis, this is brought into the full blazing light in the incarnation. What we see in Genesis 1-1 and following is the beginning God saying, I'm going to bring forth a Messiah, a Redeemer. That revelation begins where? In Genesis 1-1. It's the blazing revelation that comes into full light in the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. But it begins by revelatory information in Genesis. This issue of the incarnation. Let's read from Luke chapter 1. And, and the reason I want to do this, to read these verses, because what I want to do and what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to do is this, that when we read other portions of the Bible, and especially when we read issues or rather uh, portions concerning the person and work of Christ, that we're not reading it in a way that disassociates it from the rest of the Bible. I want us to be able, when we read the birth narrative, when we read the narrative about Jesus doing this or going there or being crucified or whatever happens, I want us to see that when we read that, we recall Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Rather than just seeing verses and sets of Scripture in and of themselves isolated, let's see them connectively into the great and grand story of God Almighty. Amen? So that's why I want to read these. I know you've heard them before, but I want to read them so when we see them the next time, you're going to remember Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. And it's going to flash before you. That is what God was talking about, this incarnation. That was beginning to be re um, revealed in those words. So let's read that. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one of the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting might this be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said, how is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, that revelation begins where? In Genesis 1.1. Let's turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The beginnings of this revelation start in Genesis 1-1 and travel all the way through the Old Testament until they begin to be absolutely fulfilled in this birth announcement and in this birth. You see, all of the truth that is seen in these verses is introduced in Genesis 1 through 3, the first three chapters. This is why we must see the text, those chapters. We must see that text, those chapters, within the larger context of God's Christological perspective and his purpose. Christological means having Christ as the center and as the purpose and as the meaning of the whole thing. You see, when we look at the Bible and when we read Genesis 1 through 3, we're going to be able to answer a whole lot of questions. Yeah, there was a serpent. Adam did this. Six days of this. God did this on the seventh day. A tree here, a tree there. We, we know a lot about that. But that's not what is primary. If we can't answer this question, what of Christ do we see in Genesis 1 through 3? We have missed the forest for the trees. And I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. It's good to know the particulars. But why are the particulars given the way they are, assembled the way they are, and what is their meaning from God's purpose the meaning is this christ jesus christ the son of god you see with this perspective let's begin to look at chapter one with this perspective with these if you would christological glasses and every time you open your bible from now on if you haven't done so in the past put on by prayer asking the holy spirit depending upon god looking to him by faith knowing he will do this Put on Christological glasses before you look and read your Bible. 
So let's look at chapter 1 from this perspective to discover God's self-revelation in Christ and his purpose for creating us. So the text of God, Genesis 1, 1 through Genesis 2, 3. Why do I have 2, 3 there? Because chapter 1 in this conversation and in any books, and you'll see it in your own Bible, chapter 1 also includes the first three verses of chapter 2. So when I say chapter 1, I'm automatically talking also about verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. That's going to be the way I'm going to say it. Chapter 1 is going to include those verses automatically. So just let's get that kind of in our thought pattern. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we will go into this later. That is the most astounding verse in the whole Bible. The most astounding verse is not that Jesus loves me. The most astounding verse is not about the cross. The most asta- all those verses are gathered up into this verse. The most astounding verse is not that we have eternal life in Christ. The most astounding verses is not that we're going to heaven. All of those verses, as astounding as they are, are gathered up into this verse. This is the mama verse, if you would. This is the most important, significant verse in the entire Bible. And I will just give you a little hint. It declares that our God is a other-oriented God, that the grace of God being oriented outside of himself for a people whom he would create for his own possession. Everything that I read in the rest of my Bible is an outworking of this verse. Please see the Bible bigger than you've been seeing it. Please see these verses and don't trip through them in a mighty pace in order to get to the good stuff. This is the good stuff. I I can't, I'm fighting myself wanting to bring all that, what I'm going to talk about, into this, and I have to say, excuse me, I won't do that today. I'll do it the next time. Wait until the next classes, Peter. So thank you. I needed to rebuke myself for wanting to gather and bring it all in today. So I'm going to have to take my time. But sometimes you have to just rebuke yourself, right? (laughs) You see, this is the introductory statement or title for the rest of the account. Why do we call it Genesis? Because it says the beginning. The word Genesis simply means beginning. So that's why they called it Genesis. In the beginning. In the beginning beginning this phrase is filled with mystery and difficulty why because it identifies a state of existence that transcends our time locked experience and vocabulary simply put we who are time locked people cannot under any circumstance through any series series of activities, get our minds outside of the issue of time into that state in which God dwells and before 
creation was made. You can forget it. And one of the big difficulties of studying anything about God is this. We use time-locked, time-framed words to be describing this one who is not in himself associated with in himself as a being with time. Time is something that he created for us. And so when we talk about, which we'll maybe get into, Jesus was begotten and this and that, people say, oh, that means this. No, these are our poor words to describe that which is indescribable. But we have to do it some way. And so God has given us at least some ability here. In the beginning, it's that state in which God alone dwells. What about the angels? Do angels dwell in that state? No. In the beginning is that euphemistic term that means it is that state of existence in which only our God dwells. So don't get this confused about, well, in the beginning, the angels and it. Don't do that. It is not what this verse is saying. This phrase is not saying that. In the beginning is that unique state of existence. It's about the best way I can say it. In which only God himself dwells. Nothing else. Only God. So therefore, God is referred to as the eternal God. Eternal is another one of these phrases which relate to that state of timelessness in which only God dwells, and not only in which he dwells, but who he is as <clears throat> the eternal, timeless being. There is never an existence apart from God not existing. God always has been, is, and always will be. So he's called eternal. It is one of those terms that relates to not only a state of existence, but to him who is that existence. So let's make sure we see it, not only as a state of existence, but more than that, to him who is that eternal timeless, forever existing one. This is what's being conveyed in this wor these words in the beginning. Now, okay, that's fine. I got it. God's been there all the time. He'll always be there all the time. That's great. Well, let's move along because I want to learn something about Christ here. I I'm wanting to get into the Jesus stuff here. What does this have to do with Jesus in the beginning? What does this have to do with Jesus? I mean, this is just the author's way of saying, hey, in that whatever period is called, God's decided to do something. What does it have to do with Christ? Well, the Old Testament prophesied that God would send his ruler, who was also eternal, coexisting with God himself. You see, in the beginning, describes not only the state of God, but God himself. But the prophets of the Old Testament, and specifically the one we'll read this morning in Micah 5, 2, will describe a particular person 
who is coexistent with this one who is himself eternal. Listen to this word from Micah 5.2. All of you may have heard it. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. This is God speaking. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler over my people in Israel. Here it is. Listen to this phrase or this clause. Whose origin is from old, from the beginning, from ancient days. Now the word ancient of days, remember me, some of you will remember, it is only used, the ancient of days is only used in one place in the Bible. Where is that? In Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees the throne room of God. I don't think it's in Revelation. I could be wrong. But anyway, he sees the revelation of God. And the one sitting, sitting on the throne is the Ancient of Days. It is a term which means the everlasting God himself, disassociated from any aspect or issue of time. It is a time-locked word <laughs> which describes that which is not time-locked. And so when Micah says, from ancient days, what Micah is saying by the Holy Spirit, he's prophesying by the Holy Spirit, that the one who is also ancient days and with the ancient of days, this is the one who will be coming forth to rule my people Israel. You see, this prophecy was fulfilled when? In the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. And let's look at Matthew chapter 2 and 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, by the way, this is about a year and a half to two years after Beth, uh, uh, the manger, remember. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and he quotes from Micah. So the birth of this one in Bethlehem is the one who has been prophesied, who would come forth from God, who would be associated with and one with the ancient days. <clears throat> you see, in the beginning not only talked about God creating, but it talks about God being with Christ, Christ being with God, which we'll see in a few minutes. So what does this have to do with Christ? It is part of the whole declaration that Jesus Christ is part of the Godhead. See, remember this is also the emphasis of John 1.1. 1, 1. Remember John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning... John 1, 1, what? In the beginning. Where have you heard John 1, 1 before? Genesis 1, 1. Why does John 1, 1 begin there? Because John's emphasis overall is Christological. He wants to show that in this person and in this work of this one, that he is God's Messiah. 
And how does he prove that? How does he show that Jesus is God's Messiah? Well, he doesn't start with miracles. He doesn't start with the cross. He doesn't start with anything else except where? In the beginning. I'm telling you that this one in the beginning is the same in the beginning as Genesis in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and without Him was anything made that was made. What does this have to do with Christ? Why are we studying Genesis? Well, we just want to get some information about the Old Testament, Scotty. That's all we're trying to do. Just No, what we're doing is being instructed by the Holy Spirit to show us the most incredible revelation that this Bible, with all of its mystery, with all of the things that we don't understand, with all of its texts, is the most incredible book ever put on paper by man. It is the book of God. There is no other book like it. There is no other book that traces out these issues and these revelations that God begins to give in Genesis so thoroughly, so completely, and so perfectly all the way to Revelation. 4,000 years of writing over 40 authors, most of whom never knew one another except a name on a piece of paper, and yet they all wrote precisely, completely, without any, uh, what do you call it, uh, contradiction, the same revelation and information. How could they have done this without a computer? Oh, there are things in the Bible we don't understand. I guess so. I don't even know if we're beginning to even scratch the surface. You're talking about scratching the surface. I think we're just kind of standing on the surface and having begun to scratch it. But here's what you remember. It's all true. Let them attack it. It's all true. May I say it again? It's all true. And can you say amen? It's all true. So what does in the beginning have to do with Christ? Al, it has everything to do with Christ. It has everything to do with Christ. The next time you open the book of Genesis, how many of you are going to, at least you start seeing today, you're going to begin to look at this text differently than you did before? How many of you will be able to say that? Today, I see I'm going to look at it differently. It's bigger than I thought it was. It's bigger than I thought it was. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered or brooded or vibrated over the waters. Right? Verse 2. What this verse is, and I'm not going to get into any more details than this because I simply don't have the time to do that, This verse describes the initial condition of God's creation. It describes the initial condition of God's creation. The rest of the chapter, day one, two, three, four, is a step-by-step record of God's bringing order and function 
to this creation. So let me read this to you. Felt like the Lord gave this as a description. It's like saying that John began to construct his house. He first collected or created, if you would, within this context, all the raw material. At that point, the house was without form and order. It was all just kind of sitting in the yard, you know what I mean? Piled up over there. Then during the next six days, John brought order and function to the material as he used the materials to construct the house. That's what we have in Genesis chapter 1. It's that literary device that introduces what God is doing and then begins to explain he did this, 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 and at the end of it, he's finished the house, that's how he did it, he sat down and rested. That's what Genesis 1-1 is about. That's the mechanics of it. That's the, the outward stuff of it. That's the, the natural information. <clears throat> but behind it is the enormity of who God is and of his purpose. Verses 3 to 25. And I think that's all we're going to get to today. I'm glad I didn't think to go any further. The Lord literally stopped me in the middle of this and said, don't go any further. See, God knows more that I'm a windbag more than I do. In verses 3 to 25, I know there's 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31. I realize that, but give me a little grace here. 3 to 25, God brings order and function to his creation. And as I, I, we look at these verses, I want you to notice something. There, there are two sets of triads. What is a triad? Two sets of threes. How many of you know what, how, many, how many sides does a triangle have? How many sides does a triangle have? How many? Three. So a triad is, so again, even in the literary writing of it, there are intimations about this God. <clears throat> and what happens is this, and it's sad, and we all do it, and we all have done it, but let's not do it anymore. We read this account trying to figure out scientific information now, first of all, you're not going to get it. But what we do need to do and we can get is when we read this account, we can get something about God. And I guarantee, I'd rather know more about God than I do about physics. I'm not knocking physics or biology or any of those other things. But what I mostly need is a deeper functioning, effective knowledge of God himself in my life. The others are fine, but I need that. So do you think that when Moses is writing this, well, let me do it in a way that I can kind of begin to intimate something about God. Because you see, not even Moses understood God's real nature. This was hidden from mankind until the birth of Jesus, remember. So do you think Moses is sitting there thinking, no, no, he's just writing down as God is dictating him. That's all he knows, Joe. Just, I'm just kind of putting it down as God gives it to me. So let's look at the first sets of days. Day one. Day one begins in verse three, goes to verse five. God begins, and we begin with what? I'm going to call it sky. And he begins to create. Remember, let there be light. So that's day one. Day two, verse six to eight. We're going to call that C. He begins to create the waters and, you know, and the whatever. You see it? We see where I am? I'm going through it quickly. So that's day two. Day three, verse 9 to 13. I'm calling this soil. Now, why do I do it that way? 
for me it's easier. Sky, sea, and soil. Each day begins verse 3, verse 6, and verse 9. So there you have a set of three. Did you get it? You got that. We're not going to go into any more detail than this. If you want to know what happened in those days, look at your notes or look at the Bible. Now, those are preparatory comments about each of those days. Now, God's going to go back and he's going to give you more detail of what he did in each of those days. So we're going to go back in today's sky, sea, and soil, and we'll get a little more detail. So the next set of three, or the next triad, begins where? Verse 14. Verse 14 elaborates on what verse 3 did. So you have day one, day four. You see it? Day one beginning, day four is a description of it. Then you go to verse 20. Verse 20 to 23 gives you the elaboration of day two. So day two, this is what I did about the sea. Day five, I have all these fishies and things that swim in the seas and all that I got. That's what I did, and that's day five. Day six, we begin where? In verse 24 and 25, that's where we'll stop today. And we'll talk about the soil. He started talking about the soil in verse 9. That was day 3. And he's going to complete the discussion of the soil or the earth or the land. And he's going to bring dry land and animals and birdies and, you know, stuff like that. He's going to complete that on day 6, at least the first half of day 6. And so here you have it, two sets of triads. The first three giving a capsulated kind of an overview. Day one, day two, day three. Then day one is elaborated on in day four. Day two is elaborated on in day what? Five. And day three is elaborated upon in day six. So already the literary content and the literary structure is not there just to say that, hey, someone is really, really pretty good about this, man. What is God saying about himself even in the structure of the way it is written? Not only in what he does on those days, but even in the structure of the composition of the literary presentation. See, you see that everything about this Bible is from, about, and for God. And when you begin to see it this way, it's like, wait a minute. This is enormously bigger than I thought it was. So I, I, as I close today, I feel the Lord wants to bear down on this. Please don't misunderstand. We do not deprecate or belittle any thought or desire or pursuit of trying to understand some of the mechanics here. We don't do that. We take it as God has given it. As I said last week, I take this as six 24-literal-hour days. If I'm stupid, I'm stupid, and I don't mind being stupid. 
But the emphasis is not in the how many fish and what kind of fish and this and that and the plants, you know, because this crawled out of that. No. The emphasis is this. In this most marvelous of books and most marvelous of texts, one through three of Genesis, God begins, beginning to bring forth the greatest revelation that all of the universe could ever have, beginning to open the curtain of himself as he creates and as he becomes a participant in that creation for his own glory. Next week, we're going to go into chapter 1, verse 26 to 31, and we're going to continue with this, and then we're going to transition from the, God of, the text of God to the God of the text. Not next week, the week after next. Next week, the men and women are separate. So again, let me ask you to do this. By the way, how many of you did the homework, read it, and outlined chapter 1? Good, wonderful. Next week, you don't have any homework because we won't get into chapter 2 for about a week or so. So let's come next time. I do have a couple of questions here. Hopefully, again, bring more wisdom because let me guarantee, as we get into this and we begin to talk about what Eden is all about and what the Sabbath is all about and how all of this relates to us today and whatever this is going to be, I think, hopefully for all of us, for me included, a most wonderful study. Thank you so much for coming.